0: The following audio is brought to you by Emanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. So we've been looking, obviously, uh, for the last few weeks at uh, the, really just the introduction to the New Testament, getting into uh, understanding the developments of the story. And much like we did with the Old Testament, New Testament has a little bit of a difference to it. Obviously, there's a, there's a lot more that you're familiar with, first of all. But then there's also, um, historically, it gets a little closer to us, so there's, there's some more things that we know for sure um, that, are, that are helpful in some ways. And, but then there's also things that we sometimes uh, just gloss over that's helpful to just go through slowly and really think about what's being told to us and what, what kind of story is actually being developed for us here in the New Testament. I think it's really helpful to do that. Last week, what, what I think a lot of people know about, you know, the, the, the Christian uh, gospel story is, you know, the birth of Jesus. Okay, so that's, you know, begin, people are going to begin there. But really, some of the gospel writers, particularly Luke, starts with the birth of John the Baptist and how important the forerunner of Christ really is to proclaim and uh, open the eyes of the people to their need for repentance before Christ even comes on the scene. And so last week we dealt with the birth of John and how that story began to develop. And we saw a few things there, and I want to just recap some of those for us. Um, obviously it's a significant event. It's uh, particular to the Gospel of Luke. No other Gospel really addresses his birth narrative and what all the circumstances were around that. But... Um, the, remember, there's the elderly priest Zechariah who's serving in the temple. He has a barren wife, Elizabeth, who is at home. And um, there's a, he's serving in the temple the, probably the only time he's ever done it in, in this particular capacity, as they have to draw lots and all this kind of stuff to figure out who's going to do that, that task. And so he gets this job as, as a very old man, and he's in there uh, likely for the first and only time in his life, serving in the temple, and, and an angel appears to him. In, in that setting, which is, to me, is somewhat humorous. I kind of laugh at a lot of things, but I, I think that's a little bit, little bit funny that the Lord chose that time to do that. But the angel Gabriel tells him right there in the, in the temple, not only that John's going to be born, but that John is going to s- serve a very important role in the life of Israel As a forerunner to Christ, and some of the words that he uses is that he's gonna perform his ministry in the spirit and power of Elijah. And and not only that, but he's gonna be filled with the Spirit of God from the womb. And both of those things are tremendously important because him being filled with the spirit and power of Elijah is how the Old Testament ends. That there's gonna come, there's one is gonna come before the great day of the Lord is here, which is the coming of the Messiah, and that person is going gonna, is gonna to be Elijah. Well, what Gabriel lets us know there in the temple is that he's going to be doing his ministry in the spirit and power of Elijah. This is the guy. This is the one that, that was to come. And Jesus will later tell that to the disciples that John the Baptist was that one that was fulfilling that role. But not only that, he's gonna be filled, he says, Gabriel says he's gonna be filled with the Spirit of God from the womb. So even before he's born, he's still gonna have that forerunner capacity in the nine months of gestation that he's in there. All right. So that's you when you hear that, it's kind of an odd statement, unless something about that is gonna come back later on. So when you see those odd statements, just you know, side note, when you see those odd statements that you think are kind of that's weird that he would say that. Just sort of highlight that and look for it somewhere else because it's probably going to come up later on in the story. And it does. Um, Zechariah obviously responds to the angel um, with unbelief. With a, really with a question. Well, how, do I, how do I know this for sure? And Gabriel is kind of, I mean, he's offended by it. <laughs> he's like, I'm Gabriel. I stand before the Lord. You want to know how sure this is? Well, you're not going to be able to speak until the child is born. Well, that's one way to do it. And so it gives him that he's stricken mute until the birth of the child. Now, obviously, Zechariah is chastised for his unbelief by Gabriel right there in the temple. But in an ironic sort of twist, his muteness also serves as a sign. You know, it does answer his question. How will I know? Well, here's how you'll know. You'll be mute, you know, again. Probably not what he was exactly asking for, but that's what he got, both for his unbelief and also to serve as a sign. And, that, and Luke later tells us that when Zechariah opens his mouth, after having been struck mute, everybody around knows hears, sees the correlation of the birth of the child and Zechariah now speaking, and they all marveled at it. So it's a sign not just to Zechariah and to Elizabeth, but it's also a sign to everybody else the muteness was something. He really did see something in that temple. That the birth is not a coincidence or anything like that. It, he became mute when she got pregnant, and he his mouth was opened when she had the baby. So this is a, there is significance here to this child. So it becomes a sign. And then, uh, but then the other part of this, which I think is is sometimes is probably understated, and we probably don't spend enough time on it, but. Zechariah had an inability to speak, so he really couldn't tell anybody outright, hey, my son's coming, and he's going to be the forerunner to Christ. So for nine months, this guy is completely mute. And then Elizabeth, we're told, goes into hiding, and she hides for that first five months of gestation. She, she is often hiding. The first person that is recorded to have come to her is after her five months of hiding, and it's Mary and she's pregnant, and she comes to Elizabeth at month six. So Elizabeth, by all accounts of the gospel, has not seen anybody but Zechariah until that point. And so when, she, when Mary comes in, what happens in Elizabeth's womb? There's the point where David talked to me after uh, last time, I didn't know this, medically speaking, uh, there is the point of quickening, which is right o- along that, that same time, about 20 weeks, where the, the baby you know kicks, comes alive, or whatever. And so, Elizabeth, Luke says to us that, obviously, he told us earlier on, John is going to be filled with the Spirit from the womb. And then, when he kicks her, as he hears the voice of Mary come in, who is now bearing the Christ child, John kicks, filled with the Spirit. Hey, Jesus is here, right? He's doing that. And then, Luke tells us that that Elizabeth filled with the Holy Spirit, says, Blessed is the fruit of your womb. You know, who is this that the, 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 uh, the bearer of my Lord would come? And, and so we have in this, this neat little story in, in Luke where the Holy Spirit is the one who proclaims the Christ coming. And Luke is very careful to tell us that it's the Holy Spirit who's indwelling all these people to shout the proclamation of Christ as he comes in. So it's, it's really, uh, the birth of John is not insignificant. It's not just a, and it's not even just a cute little story. It is a, uh, a powerful message of how this gospel is going to go, that the people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit are going to be the ones that see and recognize the, the Christ, the one who is here to save, okay? So that's John. So now we come to the story of of Christ in the incarnation. And uh, there's a couple of things that I, I think are obviously really important in this story that we're gonna go through. So we have six months right at it after the announcement of the baby, John, that's to be born to Zechariah and Gabriel, uh, and sorry, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh, Gabriel appears to a virgin uh, named Mary who is legally pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, who is, we're told, a descendant of David. And uh, so I want to read that, and then I want to I finish this, this point. So let's, let's read it first. Uh, Luke 1, 26-38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who has been called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So, Gabriel's description of the conception. This is, you know, this is the only time... We really get a glimpse into an explanation of like how this conception is going to happen. There's, a, there's a, even a brief description here, and Gabriel's description of the conception of Jesus stresses two very important points that are rooted in the Old Testament. So I want to I want us to just think about the way that he describes all of this happen. Uh, there's two at least two big points that I think are really important for us to think about especially when it comes to the Old Testament. First, the virgin conception is set in the context of creation and the coming new creation. So you have this passage in Genesis 1-2, which we obviously know Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Well, in Genesis 1-2, it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And, and here it is in the creation effort, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So there's it, Genesis one two presents God's Spirit hovering in this divine power over the waters as God begins to create the world. So um, you know we've talked about in the Gospel of John, in at least in Feast, in several other places, and that that the that Christ is there with the Father in creation. Things are created through Him and for Him we see in the New Testament. But here the Holy Spirit is also present in the creating effort. And the Spirit is hovering over um, the face of the waters to create the, the world. And so Gabriel now presents God's Spirit hovering into divine creation power over Mary. So what is now taking place is the beginning of the new creation... By the Son's assumption of a human nature that, makes, uh, that the Spirit makes holy. So, in other words, the, uh, it's not that the Son, we know Him to be eternal, but the body that He is coming to dwell in is being created, and it's being created by the same creating power that was there at the beginning created old creation, the Spirit hovering over the waters. Now, the Spirit is hovering over Mary, or overshadowing Mary. And so, there is a, an important kind of shift that's taking place, just as one creation was taking place through the Spirit, now the next uh, is being ushered in, essentially. So, the Son of God, and this, this is another thing that is really important to think about when it comes to what is happening here in the Incarnation. The Son of God who who has existed eternally. There never was a time when the Son was not. Okay? The S-O-N. Son was not. Um, So the Son of God, though, in the incarnation is adding to his eternal nature a human nature. So think about that for just a second. The Godhead has a human in it now that didn't before. Right? That's, that's uh, interesting, I think. However, he does not add to himself a fallen human nature. So, he does not inherit the same kind of nature that we inherit by being children of Adam. You, you, you following with me so far? Okay. He does not inherit that same fallen nature. And, and that means, just like Adam was made in the beginning... Without sin, Jesus also is like a new Adam in that he also does not have sin. Okay? So he is coming into the world without a fallen human nature. Everything in this text speaks about the sovereign work of the Spirit to take Mary, uh, take from Mary what is fallen, to sanctify it and to make it holy. So, in other words, the fallen nature of Mary does not go upstream and poison the Lord, as it were. The holiness of the Lord comes downstream to sanctify this process. Does that that make sense? Uh, You see this even in Jesus' ministry, where he goes up and touches the unclean leper, and the unclean leper does not make Jesus unclean. The holy Lord makes the leper clean. Right? Is that... it? Holiness flows downstream, is what I'm trying to say. Okay, so, um, so he doesn't inherit a, 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 a fallen human nature. So what that means then is that Christ's conception is the divine intrusion of the triune God to bring forth the last Adam. So this is God's work, in other words, to bring a new Adam into the world, one without sin. The same Lord that out of the dirt created a man and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, is now actually coming to Mary and giving her the Christ child that He would be born also without sin, also indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and also empowered with the same commands that Adam was given. The difference is going to be, obviously, that Christ succeeds where Adam failed. So we sing, um, we sing a song called, go on. It's Christ the True and Better. That's, that's one. Uh, and then there's, uh, I, it just like literally as soon as I thought it, it just went poof. It just went right out there. Uh, and anyway. It doesn't matter now. I, it was obviously tremendously important, what I was going to say, and it's gone. So, at some point, I'll wake up in the middle of the night, and I'll be like... Yeah, uh, it, the line is, Christ, uh, Christ the true and better Adam. Uh, or is it the new and better Adam? See, that even left me. Now, it wasn't even worth saying. I should have just said, well, there it goes, and I'm gone. And But now you know, so that's how my mind works. Okay, good. Um, so, <laughs> So so the first thing we got to remember is that this uh, conception in Mary, when when Christ is now coming uh, to live in her womb for nine months, this is the beginning of the new creation. uh, That the new Adam, the new and better, the last Adam, is going to usher in. Um, You know, the difference will be that Well, really, I wouldn't even say it's that much of a difference. This is part of the reason why Nicodemus will get so confused in Genesis chapter 3 when Jesus phrases being saved as being born again. You were already born into Adam. You are right now born into Adam. You have to be born again into a new creation. You tracking? That's, That's the language. That's where it comes from. And so it's important that we understand that's what's happening here. That's what Luke is is pulling us into, is saying that the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow her, and this ushers in, this signals to us that new creation is coming. Um, Okay, second, uh, Luke's stress on the word overshadowing being a work of the Spirit also connects Christ's incarnation to God's unique covenantal presence. So this word overshadowing is actually a really important word and it's connected to the way God provides for His people. And so, it, just follow, follow me on this for just a, just a minute here. Uh, the verb that he uses here in, in, in the Gospel of Luke is also used in the Old Testament for the hovering of the cloud of God's presence and His ongoing protection and covenantal presence with his people. So I want, to, I want us to read a few of those verses where you can see. Now, now I, want to, I want to caution you for just a second, because the verses that I'm, to, I'm about to read, I'm going to read as an English translation from the Hebrew. Luke uses a Greek word that comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So just track with me. I think we'll be, we'll be fine. But Exodus 40, verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and that's, that word settled, the cloud settled on it or overshadowed it, uh, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So he's coming down to meet with his people, and the way the cloud comes down is it overshadows the temple. Uh, Psalm 91, verse 4. He will cover you, he will overshadow you with his pinions. And under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. O Lord, O Lord, O Lord, my Lord, the strength of my salvation, You have overshadowed, You have covered my head in the day of battle. The way that word is used in the Old Testament is looking to the Lord as the one who comes in to protect His people. It's a symbol of his presence and his ongoing protection, his holiness, his power even, his glory. Later, this will become known as the Shekinah glory of the Lord, the, the protecting, presence, uh, power, visible, tangible even, you might say, uh, his, his presence, that he only establishes with his covenant people. It's, it's his people that enjoy this kind of protection. And now, what Mary is being told is the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you, so Mary is going to enjoy a—you might call it—a special focus, like the people of Israel in the Old Testament going through the wilderness, or in—or the, the Psalmist even—that that Mary is going to receive a kind of overshadowing, a a special, uh, a, you might say, dispensation of the Holy Spirit's uh, presence there with her in protection. Um, so here, here's what all of that boils down to. I know some of that is like really complex language and you know thoughts and things like that. Maybe, they, maybe some of it's new to you. Um, but these two aspects of the, the angel's message to Mary fulfill God's promise of the coming Messiah and the entire Messiah messianic age um, as the Savior will be specially endowed with the Spirit of God. So Uh, let me explain what that means. Um, Essentially what what the angel is promising to Mary is essentially what we've been promised was coming when the Messiah comes, and what the age of his ministry is like. The age of the Messiah's ministry is not just the time period that we're reading about in the New Testament. The age, the messianic age, the age of Jesus' ministry, the age of the ministry of the Messiah is right now, it's still ongoing. And and so we are still under the ministry of Jesus, the Messiah, the Good Shepherd even, he will call himself. And, And so what is happening here is that it's ushering in and fulfilling all of the promises that God made to all of his people about what that age is going to be like. It's going to be an era where God, specifically through the the Holy Spirit, uh, covers His people and dwells with them in a a particular way. So here's how we see that work. Look at Isaiah 11, 1-2. There shall come forth uh, forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So who are we talking about? Who is this that we're talking about in Isaiah? Spirit of, Come forth from the shoot of Jesse. Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. It was Jesus. Yeah, it was easy. It was easy. It was a softball. Okay. Uh, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Okay. So... That's the way it's described, the Messiah coming, the Spirit of the Lord is going to rest on. Well, then we have it again in Isaiah 42, 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Hold hold on to that verse. Just think about that verse. Maybe even star it. Uh, We'll come back to it later. But just think about that. Uh, he's going to bring forth justice to the nations. His, the Spirit of God is going to be upon Him. Uh, this is one Jesus reads uh, in the temple about Himself. He says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing uh, about Him. It's Isaiah 61, 1-3 The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. This is uh, seen as the Messiah's ministry. He's going to be endowed by the Holy Spirit, and this is going to be his, his specific task. And we're already seeing that in the Incarnation where the Spirit is going to overshadow, the Spirit is going to indwell, the Spirit is going to do what otherwise could never be done and that a virgin will conceive and give birth to a child. Okay, But, it goes further than that. Look at Joel. Now, we're not talking about Jesus. We're talking about the messianic age in Joel 2, 28 to 32. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Why are they going to dream dreams and why are they going to see visions? Why? Because the Spirit's going to be poured out on them. Right? So, and who is this? This is, this is after the coming of the Messiah. There's going to be a pouring out of the Spirit where the daughters and sons will prophesy and dream dreams and all those. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire, columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to be turned to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved for in... Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. Among the survivors shall be those who call upon who, whom the Lord calls. So, th- the apostles are clear in Acts that this is Pentecost. Pentecost is, you're seeing the fulfillment of that where the Holy Spirit is poured out on His people. And uh, and so, um you have not only the the Messianic age being one where the Messiah comes, who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is with him, but even those whom the Lord calls then also have the same spirit that they are carrying about in their ministry as well, going forth. Um, Okay, so after Mary is found to be pregnant, Joseph resolves to divorce her, since her pregnancy seemed to be a clear sign of adultery, um, obviously, as, as one would suspect. However, following an appearance by an angel in a dream, he decides to marry her, as the angel has commanded him to do. And so Matthew tells the reader that this fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah. Let's read this passage, then let's read the Isaiah passage, so you can hear the two together. uh, he took he took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now look at uh, Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord will give you a sign: behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call and shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay, so that was the the passage that Matthew is saying is now fulfilled here. Now, I want to, I think it's worth, and I've done this a number of times, but it's always worth, I think, repeating because um, Matthew says here in, in uh, the birth of Christ or in the promise that the, the angel gives to, Matthew, uh, to Joseph, the command that he gives, that uh, this essentially fulfills what was written in Isaiah, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. But there's more layers to that than just okay, well, then that was a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah, because it it is more than that. Um, The Old Testament interpretation of that passage in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7, so remember, people who have not heard or seen or known Christ or believe in Christ, let's say, how would they look at that passage in Isaiah? Um, That passage in Isaiah, the Old Testament interpretation of the passage, seems to have been, uh, have seen its fulfillment in I, the birth of Isaiah's son. Uh, some think it's Isaiah's son. Some think it's Ahaz's son. Either way, it doesn't necessarily matter. But um, but most see it as the fulfillment of the birth of a child during that time. And in Isaiah's case, in the case of Isaiah's son, which I think is the right interpretation of it, uh, that his name is Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which uh, if anybody's planning on having another child, I would just... Commend that name to you, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, which uh, means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. How cool is that name, right? Yeah, you'd like to see that on the back of a football jersey. That would be awesome. <laughs> uh, I'd buy that jersey. You know, it just it doesn't matter if it was. Yeah. Baz. Uh, yeah. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. I, I ran that by my wife and she didn't respond to my text. I said, like, if we have a fourth kid, just saying, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Uh, okay. So, and, and the reason that we kind of know that is several things. First of all, look at Isaiah 7.16. Um, so, uh, Isaiah, basically, Ahaz, a- Isaiah is talking to Ahaz, the ki- who is the king of Judah at the time. And, um, and Isaiah basically says this. Uh, he says, you know, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a, a, a son, and you should call his name Emmanuel. Just another verse later, two verses later. He says, for before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. You see that promise that Ahaz? So the, just look, there's going to be a virgin to give birth to a son, and before that kid knows good or bad, knows how to choose good or good or evil, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. There's a sign coming to Ahaz, and that's that's it. That's how you'll know it's going to be fulfilled. Um, and then eight three, uh, he says, and I went to the prophetess, I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Shalal Hashbaz. Uh, so we have Isaiah giving to Ahaz a, a promise of a sign, and the promise is. When the, kid, the kid's going to be born to this woman, and before he grows up to know good or evil, those two nations are going to be gone. They're going to be wiped off the face of the earth. That's how you'll know that the Lord is, is with you. And so immediately after that, Isaiah goes to the his wife, essentially, and they have a, a son. And they name him Hash Baz. Okay, let's go to the next thing here. So essentially what's happening in this scene in Isaiah, I promise this is going somewhere, um, the Lord is speaking to Ahaz, who is king of Judah, and he's challenging him to ask for a sign. The Lord tells uh, Ahaz through Isaiah, ask for a sign. Ahaz, you see, is, is nervous because there's two kings that are around him that are breathing down his neck. One whose name is Rezin. And he is the king of Damascus, Aram, whatever you want to call it, it's the same place. Uh, Rezin, he's the king. And Pekah, who is the king of Israel, that's just the kingdom in the north. And what's happened is Assyria is out here on the horizon, and Assyria is wanting to conquer these two na- these, all this, this whole region. They're wanting to conquer the whole region. And Pekah and Rezin get together. They're normally enemies. But they get together in this case, and they go, hey, we are stronger together than we are apart. The only chance that we stand against Assyria is to join together. And if we get Judah on board with this, we get Ahaz down there in the south to get on board with this, then I think we actually stand a chance of surviving Assyria's threat. And so they position this to Ahaz. Hey, you want to you join forces? And Ahaz says, I don't think so. I think I'm actually going to join with Assyria. (laughs) And they go, you want to do what? Well, that means that we're going to be dead. So, Pekah and Rezin get together and they go, well, then the only choice we've got is to go down to Judah and take Ahaz out and put a puppet on the throne. And if we can put a puppet on the throne, then he'll join us and we'll defeat Assyria. You tracking with it the whole process? It's really pretty simple, okay? When you think about it. All right. So if he's going to go down to Judah, who's on the throne in Judah? Ahaz. Who's Ahaz's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather? Anybody know? King of Judah? Who would it be? The promise made to him. Further down is 2 Samuel, or yeah, 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's David. And the promise to David is what? Your line will be unbroken. Your line's always going to be on the throne. So the fact that Ahaz is nervous about being killed by the people in the north is actually a threat to the promise that God has made to Ahaz's great-great-grandfather, David. Okay? You tracking so far? Okay. So Ahaz is really nervous, and Isaiah comes and says, Demand a sign from the Lord that is proof that he's going to be with you in this and that they're not going to kill you and ahaz in his piety in his holiness he says never shall i ask for a sign from the lord far be it from me to challenge the lord's authority i will never ask for a sign okay that's good as far as it goes but if the Lord tells you, ask for a sign, it's disobedience, (laughs) right? (laughs) You tracking? All right, so it looks like piety, but it's actually disobedience. Okay, so he says, you know, I don't want to do that. I will, you know, never do something so bad as to ask for a sign. And so uh, Ahaz, I'll give you the next bullet point, because that basically says that Ahaz protests that he will not test the Lord, uh, but... Isaiah, speaking for God, basically berates Ahaz for trying God's patience with his reply, probably because he recognizes that Ahaz is not sincere in any of this. So, Ahaz said in seven twelve, Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test, because the Bible says, don't put the Lord to the test. Uh, and so, Isaiah says, uh, Here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Your testing is patience. all right? So So he gives him a promise anyway. So he, he says, uh, the, the promise of the child that comes to Ahaz is to come from a woman, and the word he uses here is it's only the Lord could bury this, okay? Only the Lord could do it this way, all right? The word that he uses in Hebrew translated here virgin can mean someone who is ha, has legitimately never had intercourse before. It can also mean a woman who is young and of marriageable age. So it's a it's a word that intentionally has a little bit of ambiguity to it. It doesn't only mean a virgin. And in this case, the person that I think he's referring to, his wife, if he is indeed referring to his wife, is not a virgin. He has an older son, okay, than, than the one he's about to have. So, uh, but she is, a, she is a person of marriageable age, okay? And this is going to be a sign, basically, to Ahaz, before this she's going to get pregnant she's going to have a child she's not pregnant right now and the proof that 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 God is going to give you is first of all that she's going to get pregnant okay second she is that child is going to be so young not knowing the difference between good and evil so we're talking 9 months plus whatever it is it's pretty quick i think before a kid knows good and evil I mean, <laughs> I mean, you give them a fork and tell them don't stick that in the light socket and they do it anyway. Uh, I think they know pretty young. But uh, the but point is, before that child is able to grow to an age where they are able to discern good from evil, the two nations that are breathing down your neck are going to be gone. So do you see that this, what he's telling him is a promise to Ahaz. Ahaz is going to see it. And he's going to he's going to see the child born and he's going to see the promise fulfilled, and he's going to be able to trust that the Lord is going to leave him on the throne. Are you tracking so far? Okay. All right. Now, he, he then says, uh, that child in 8.8 8, and then 8.10, that child is going to be called Emmanuel, which is explained in 8.10 as God is with us. So he says uh, in 8.8, 8, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. O Emmanuel. Uh, then he says, 8:10, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Okay, that's where Matthew comes in and says, that's what that means. That's what Emmanuel means, is God with us. Um, Okay, so that sign, let's put these things together, okay? So first of all, there's a sign to Ahaz that God is with them. That child that's going to be born is going to take on that mantle of you are a symbol of God's ongoing presence with us. The fact that he's true to his promises. Okay, so Isaiah 8, the entire chapter, goes on to lay out that Maher Shalal Hashbaz Will be a sign to Ahaz of both salvation and judgment. That is, salvation for God's people from Israel and from Ar- Ar- Aram, that is the northern kingdom and Aram, but judgment for the unbelieving. So that child is going to be a symbol of God's protecting presence for his people and a symbol of judgment. For the nations that are that are unbelieving, that are idolatrous, that are attacking God's people, so it's this child is a sign of God's defense for His people. It's a sign of God's presence with His people. You tracking? But then we get to nine, chapter nine. Okay, this is where things are ratcheted up. Okay, just two more. Did I skip one? No, did I? There we go. There we go. All right. Gotcha. Okay. Um, In chapter nine, things get ratcheted up a notch. Chapter nine of Isaiah. Isaiah looks forward, and he looks forward to a a new day, and a day in the in the in the more distant future than today, than the day he's in, and he pictures a day. When the north is going to be taken off to be judged, okay? So we, we know that, and he's even said that in the previous chapter. Look, you're going to, the kingdoms to the north, Israel and Aram, they're going to be taken off the map before this kid grows up. But they're going to be replaced by Assyria. And Assyria is going to come in, and they're gonna he's going to wipe them out, okay? They're going to be just obliterated, okay? Assyria is going to be the judge, not these kingdoms to the north. So Assyria is going to take them off into captivity. But but chapter 9, he then goes, okay, what's going to happen then? What happens after they're hauled off into captivity and they're held under chains of slavery? What what happens then? Is there a sign for then? And so Isaiah is looking to that day when the exiles that are out in the land, out, out of the land and they're in Assyria are going to be restored to Galilee. There's going to be a day coming in the future, he's he's saying. When long past Meher Shalal Hashbaz, after his death, this is a day long in the future where these exiles that are taken off into judgment and are held in chains of slavery are going to be brought back and restored into the land of Galilee. And the description of, there's a description of another birth, which is a more wonderful birth, a birth of another child one who will be called Almighty God, who will rule from David's throne and establish universal justice. So let's look at what that day is going to look look like. So he says, okay, they're going to be hauled off into captivity in Assyria, but, verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, So he's saying there's going to come a day when Galilee produces a child who is going to rule on the throne of his father David and he's going to establish justice forever. Okay, now, so back up to what Matthew's doing. So Matthew is taking this promise that Isaiah gives to Ahaz, this birth coming from this woman, and he takes this word Isaiah may mean as just a young woman of marriageable age, his own wife. And he says, remember the word virgin that's used there in Isaiah? This fulfills that. But it's not just that Isaiah was looking forward into the future and going, hey, one day in two th- and, you know, 700 years, there's going to be a woman who is a virgin who's going to give birth to Messiah. No, no. Matthew is connecting the birth of Christ through the Virgin Mary to this whole story. And not only is he saying that this child is just like this child represented salvation and God's ongoing protection for his people, so also there is going now a a child who is born of a virgin, walking through the same steps that Israel went through 700 years ago. And yet this child is coming in not merely to be born of a virgin, but also as God's ongoing protection, this time in an even greater reality. That to us a child is born, to us a son is given. He is quite literally God with us. What we knew back then as only a temporary means of protection is now a permanent means of protection. Is God's actual, physical, real-world, life-giving presence. His real Emmanuel, God with us, here in the flesh, taking on all of our burdens and giving us protection. And ironically, chapter 9, the day that looks even further forward to the day when when Israel is ushered in from captivity, that day is also coming into fulfillment now too. That this one, this same child that's being born is actually going to lead the captives free from captivity. That he's actually going to bring them free, as Isaiah has said throughout the rest of the book that we've already read. You you, see, you tracking with what, what he's saying here? This whole thing is now coming to fulfillment. It's not just, obviously, just like Ahaz had protection back then, but to a much greater degree, it's coming now. Now, what kind of protection is that going to be? Well, the hair shalal hashbaz is a sign of salvation and judgment for God's people, but he's also a sign pointing forward to a new king. So Matthew is picking up on the description of this child, and he points to the ultimate fulfillment from the one born uh, miraculously of a true virgin, one whose birth signals true deliverance of his people from their sin. So when you look at Matthew one twenty one, the kind of protection he's coming to give is something Shalal Hashbaz could never give. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The protection that he's coming to give and the freedom that he's coming to give is not from the captivity in Syria. The freedom and protection that he's coming to give is a release from the yoke of slavery, sin. (laughs) So this will tie in eventually to John the Baptist standing in the river, And proclaiming a voice, they ask him who he is, and he says, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The wilderness that he's looking out into is the way to Assyria and to Babylon. So what he's depicting in his cry to the the people, prepare the way of the Lord, is get out of the way, y'all. The Lord's coming in. And he's going to take the captives from captivity out in Assyria and Babylon and bring them back into the land. You you tracking? And so Jesus is standing there in the Jordan, coming, coming, he's standing on the banks of the Jordan, and he comes into the river to get baptized. So all of this this imagery that's being presented here at the beginning of the Gospels is that the ushering in of the Messiah is actually the release of God's people from real captivity. The reason you went out into Babylon, the reason you went out into Assyria was not merely because of idolatry, because of sin in your heart. The idolatry was here and I may punish you, but that's not, not going to get rid of the idolatry that's here, right? The only thing that can get rid of that is this new fulfillment of Mahershalal al-Hashbaz to come in and actually plunder the devil and release his people from their sins. Yeah. Tom's going to be yelling at me if I don't close this in prayer, so let's do that. <laughs> Heavenly Father. I am grateful for your word and grateful for the impact of of its message to us and for the depth we could spend forever talking about all these things and be totally overwhelmed and uh, just have so much to chew on for for many, many years. So we are grateful for it. Um, And we're grateful that we can spend our entire lives studying it and never plumb the depths of it. And so we pray that you continue to give us more and continue to pour on and, uh, and help us through the study and reading of your word to grow more in love with you and, um, and even become sometimes even perplexed at what you have done through Christ for us. Uh, the promise of your ongoing presence with us is not something that can be easily overlooked. And it is a tremendous comfort, I know, in days of deep darkness that you are, and you have always been there, and you will always continue to be there. And your Son and his death on the cross and his resurrection is the evidence that we have to say you are always with us, and you will never leave us or forsake us. And for that we are grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.